Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's episode, well, we're going back to ancient Scotland to talk about one of the most mysterious and enigmatic people of ancient Britain. A people that were also considered the bane of Rome in the north. I am, of course, talking about the Picts. The Picts are associated with striking art such as these beautiful carved stones called the Pictish stones. Just look up Pictish stones and you'll see what I mean. They are absolutely stunning. But overall, I think it is fair to say the archaeological evidence for the Picts is limited. However, more recently, these extraordinary professors and archaeologists, especially in the north of Britain in Scotland, are unearthing more information about the Picts. And to explain all about our current knowledge about the Picts, well, I was delighted to interview one of the figures right at the forefront of this new research. He is Professor Gordon Noble from the University of Aberdeen. Now, Gordon, he has been leading excavations at striking Pictish sites, such as the massive hill fort at Taponoth, near the village of Rhyne in Aberdeenshire. This was a fascinating chat, and I really do hope you enjoy. So without further ado, here's Gordon. Gordon, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Tristan. It's great to be here. You're very welcome. And anyone who knows me will know that any chance to talk about ancient Scotland or prehistoric Scotland, I will jump at. So it's wonderful to get you on the podcast to talk about the Picts. They're such a fascinating people, aren't they, Gordon? But they almost seem... The name is surely amongst the most elusive people who lived in the island of Britain in the first millennium AD. I think so. You know, we've made leaps and bounds in the last couple of decades in terms of uncovering new sites and new information. But I think we're still light years behind what we know of, say, late Roman or early medieval England or early medieval Ireland, for example. So we've still got a lot of progress to make. So there is still that elusive and mysterious element to the Picts, I would say for sure. And in some ways, long may that continue to an extent in terms of it really does attract people to studying the Picts and getting interested in Pictish research. But that's what's also so fascinating, Gordon, what you highlighted there. And that's, you know, the last couple of decades in particular, there's so much that's been discovered, so much archaeological work that is revealing more about these people too. 
Absolutely. My background was in history of art where I did my degree in that subject and we did a little bit on the picks there in terms of looking at their art styles and part of the broader insular art traditions, that kind of thing. And I almost went straight off to do a PhD in Pictish archaeology straight after my history of art degree. But people warned me, they said, you know, don't do that. There's nothing to find out. There's no archaeology. There's no point really in trying to do that. And you'll just get lost really in things like the symbols. And, you know, you'll find yourself in a, at a dead end quite soon. So it's really nice to have all this new information and to show the possibilities of actually having a more developed archaeology and history of the pics. So it's, it's exciting times indeed. Well, let's delve into all of this. We're going to get to the archaeology very soon, but I mean, let's start with the types of sources that we have for these people. What range of sources are available for us, Gordon? So in terms of our histories, we really only have one series of documents, and that's the Pictish King lists in terms of native or indigenous documents. And that's pretty much as it's described. It's a list of kings. But it does have this fascinating origin myth appended to it, which talks about Crusny, the, the father of Picts, and he has seven sons, which have names like Fief or Fife or Kate, Kate for Kate Ness. So that's how we have a, a broad understanding of the kind of geographical spread of the Pictish kingdoms. But other than that, it's external sources. So in our early period, it's Roman sources. So our first reference is in AD 297. And then throughout the 4th century, there's repeated references to the Picts, usually in a negative way in terms of causing havoc north and south of the Roman frontier. And then in the post-Roman period, it's sources like Bede, Athavans, Life of Columba, and also the Irish Annals, which have you know, the, the tweets of the day, you know, sort of one-liners about certain Pictish kings dying or certain battles the Picts are involved in. So it's, it's very slim sources indeed in terms of our, our histories. And then in combination with that has been the slimness of the archaeological record. So the first book that I came across on the Picts was this famous book, or infamous almost, from 1950s, The Problem of the Picts. And in there, Wainwright, who's the editor of the volume, talks about you know, there's, there's no problem in Pictish archaeology because there's no archaeology of the Picts, or I paraphrase. But basically, that, that was the situation. There was so few burials, there were so few settlement sites that you could really associate. And that's still a big problem. There's still very few settlement sites, for example, and relatively few well-excavated or preserved burial sites as well. So that was part of the attraction, I think, for me, despite the kind of people warning me off studying the Picts was you know, what can we do in terms of the archaeology to actually change this situation and try and overturn that long-standing situation of a lack of resources and sources for understanding things? Well, we are going to probably spend the lion's share of this interview talking about all of that archaeology, but I want to keep on that literature for a bit longer because you did mention that mythological origin story surrounding the Picts. What is this mythology surrounding the Picts and where they come from? Well, there's lots of strands to that. So the name is probably a, a Roman name, suggesting that they're painted or, or tattooed. So it's this classic image of the Roman understanding of the barbarians. 
terms of they're tattooed, they're painted, they're, they're different, they're other, they're non-Roman. So clearly that's part of the kind of mythology and interest of the Picts is that kind of coining of, of the term. And certainly in terms of their neighbours, that is the term they adopt to describe the people north of the frontier and laterally in the post-Roman period. We don't know whether the Picts themselves called themselves that, but it seems likely that they did, or at least adopted that term later on. And then in terms of their origins, there's various origin myths about them coming from Ireland, and the most fanciful one is them coming from Scythia, which is what Bede describes. And I can only presume that that's, you know, an indication of the kind of sources that Bede is able to access in that time period. He's, you know, he's reading classical references and, and sources and the like, and perhaps comes across a reference to the Scythians being tattooed or, or painted, and he puts two and two together to get five and describes the Picts as, as also coming from that part of the world. But, you know, every, every people, every community in, you know, late Roman and, and post-Roman Britain, Ireland had some sort of fanciful origin myth, some more fanciful than others. Again, we don't have the Picts' voice to say what they thought, but, yeah, again, it adds to the kind of romance and interest, I think, in tracing Pictish origins and trying to understand more about the evolution of that society. I mean, could there be any kernel of truth behind this idea of these people coming from a distant shore, let's say like the Vikings or the Angles and the Saxons? Or do we think now that they are an indigenous people and they are like the successors of Iron Age communities like the Maiatai or the Caledoni that we hear of earlier occupying the island of Britain, northern Britain? Well, I think people had long dismissed the idea of them coming from Scythia, for, for sure. <laughs> but it's not to say that there couldn't be more closer-to-home migration streams that would at least contribute to Pictish society. But I think, in general, people have expected them to have at least some relationship to the Iron Age communities that existed in that early Roman period. And we just published with colleagues this study on ancient DNA, which is amongst the first to really look at individuals from Pickland and looking at their genetic signature. And what that showed was that the genes are certainly distinctive to this part of the world, so they're different to what you find in England. They have some broad similarities to places like Ireland, Western Scotland and Western Britain. And the individuals seem to share broad origins and relationships to the Iron Age communities who lived in, in Britain. So it's really beginning to kind of cement the picture of, you know, the Picts being a, a local evolution or development of the societies who lived in that Iron Age and early Roman period. Well, there you go. It's, as you say, it's not just archaeology that's now revealing more about them, but also science as well, genomic data. It seems that when you mentioned the word Picts, you can seem to cover quite a large area of Scotland. This might be a too difficult question to answer, but do you have any rough idea where were the heartlands of the Picts? Do we know what part of Scotland they almost spread out from almost? Yeah, so it seems to largely describe people who live north of what became the Antonine Wall. So north of the Firth of Forth, present day regions like Fife, Perthshire, Aberdeenshire, up to the Highlands, and we think probably also including the Northern Isles, certainly Orkney, probably Shetland, and probably the Western Isles. Although, you know, our sources for places like the Western Isles don't really come on stream until really the 13th century or, or later, really. So it's always difficult to tell. But in terms of 
things like place names, saints' names, distribution things like Pictish symbol stones, it broadly correlates with that area. So again, north of Firth of Forth, up to the Western Isles and up to the Northern Isles. You mentioned different kingdoms, but should we view the Picts even, let's say, in the late antique period, before the early medieval, let's say after 500 AD, should we view the Picts all as one people or a group of different peoples? <laughs> well, again, that's uh, difficult to say for sure. I think there definitely would have been different language groups and different communities, regions, political identities. We have some evidence for regional kings. So in Atherton's Life of Columba, for example, which is either you know, depicting this situation in the late 6th century or late 7th century when Atherton's writing, he talks about King Berthay, a powerful Pictish king, living at or near the, the mouth of the River Glen, so up, up near Inverness somewhere. And in his court, he has a sub-king or a little king of the Orkneys. So you can see already by that time period that the Picts had you know, quite an extensive control over large regions of Scotland, including maritime connections and perhaps maritime control over places like the Orkneys. So, yeah, it's, it's one of the unusual things about the Picts is that their kingdom seems to be relatively extensive compared to, for example, if you look at early medieval Wales or, or Ireland, where you've got you know, hundreds of, of petty kingdoms and small-scale kingdoms. The fact the Picts were able to have this quite extensive area of land and, and landscape under the control of an overking, certainly by the 7th century, is quite interesting. Well, come on then, let's keep talking about the early Picts. Let's not go too far into the medieval period or go on medieval and Matt Lewis will. They won't be very happy indeed, but we've got <laughs> plenty to talk about. Let's go Picts versus Rome, Picts versus Romans, because what are our first literary mentions of the Picts? What's the context? Well, the first one, as I say, is in that third century context. And then they are referenced in things like imperial sources listing enemies of Rome, for example. And then they're involved in various campaigns against the Romans. And most notably, in AD 367, they're involved in the barbarian conspiracy when they get together with the, the Scots and the Saxons and, and other groups and raid into Roman Britain and cause havoc for an extended period of time. So it shows you the, the reach and the power of, of the Picts in that 4th century context. And it's really interesting if you think about the development of Pictish society. And again, we have to rely on pretty limited sources. But what's quite striking is that in our early Roman sources for Northern Britain, things like Ptolemy's maps, you get lots of different groups mentioned, tribal groups or whatever you want to call them, more than a dozen names but by the time we get to the 3rd and 4th centuries, it begins to reduce. So you've got the Caledonii and the Meatae, and then laterally, it's really only the Picts that get mentioned on a regular basis. So what might be happening, as you find elsewhere on the frontier, is that the Romans are almost creating their own downfall in terms of you know, creating these more unified groups at the edge of empire who are actually able to come together and actually resist Roman rule and, you know, ultimately help bring that empire down or at least cause it serious trouble. It's really interesting in the sources how you do get the portrayal of the Picts as, you know, being the enemies of Rome. And I must therefore also ask about this extraordinary artefact. Though I don't believe it's from Britain, but it 
relates the picks, you probably know what I'm going to talk about the Dice Tower because what exactly is it? It does look remarkable from images. Yeah, yeah. So it's from the the German frontier, and it's a, a bronze object, a, a dice tower. You know, you throw your dice at the top, and it falls down the steps, and it's part of a gaming tradition. And on the side of it, in Latin, it says, the picks are defeated, play in safety. So it shows that that Pictish identity isn't just a, you know, a very regional one found or only relevant to, to the northmost frontier. It's clearly a, you know, an identity that is having a wider currency as a kind of noted enemy of Rome. So that's one of the reasons we began to toy with this kind of provocative title of our, our latest book, the you know, Scourge of Rome, which is probably maybe slightly <laughs> overblowing it. But certainly they were a noted enemy of Rome, and it is something that you get repeated throughout the four centuries, the Picts causing trouble north and south of the frontier, getting together with these other barbarian groups. And it's really interesting in terms of, again, if you think about, you know, how did those barbarian groups actually communicate then? Perhaps it might be through individuals who served in the Roman army and, and picked up Latin and were able to communicate with one another, again, to kind of come together to resist Roman rule and to try and get some of that power and wealth for themselves. So it's a really, really interesting process, isn't it? It really is. And it's fascinating to think that perhaps, you know, the Picts were almost the bogeymen of the Romans, as you said, with the dice game and then being well known beyond the north of Britain, but almost saying to a Roman soldier, you know, don't misbehave or you'll get sent to Hadrian's Wall or whatever, and you'll have to deal with facing with this terrible enemy in the north. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's a good description. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on my podcast, not just the Tudors from History Hit, I try to make sense of everything that baffled our early modern ancestors. Like, what do you do with your waist? If you put your dunghill up against your neighbour's wall, you're going to cause rising damp. Would Henry VIII ever consider executing his wife, the Queen of England, Anne Boleyn? I'm not even sure if the Boleyns took it seriously, because why would they have any reason to suspect Henry VIII would really get rid of his queen? And why do men grow beards? During puberty, the male body heats up and a smoke rises in the body, pushes out the hair in the face. So the beard is actually a form of excrement. In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. If we keep moving on, therefore, because you did mention a bit earlier about Pictish societies, what is the archaeology revealing about the types of settlements that these early Picts in the late antique Roman ancient Britain period, what is the archaeology revealing about the types of settlements that these Picts lived in? Yeah, well, again, that's been one of the big problems about the Picts is finding their settlements. And that's a situation that really begins to become a big problem around about the 3rd century, you know, exactly the time period in which the Picts are first mentioned. So for northern Britain, particularly north of the Antonine Wall, our settlement record really just falls off the radar in terms of, you know, we go from a situation where we have hundreds of, of roundhouses, hill fort settlements from the Iron Age to a situation where we, you know, have virtually no unenclosed settlement from that kind of 3rd century onwards, with a few exceptions, but really it is a big, big shift. And that had led people down the road of actually questioning and that whole idea of, of the Picts being a kind of amalgamation and coming together of groups to create a kind of more powerful group. People began to argue opposite, you know, this was a big collapse in society and the like. And I think the problem is the way that Picts built their structures is very difficult to recover archaeologically. So where we do find them, places like hill forts, or places that haven't been ploughed, then we find these really ephemeral structures, which were turf-walled, probably crook frames. So you can imagine in a lowland context, you know, that uh, you know a single season of modern ploughing would just completely remove them. So that's one of the big challenges, really, is, is finding the settlements. But we have began to make progress on that note. So we've been looking at a lot of hill forts and promontory forts, because again, that's probably where it's going to survive. And we've began to find a lot more sites, particularly ones, or what's most interesting is the ones that actually broach that traditional divide between the late Roman and early medieval period. And that's becoming much, much more obvious, is that there's 
much greater continuity between these traditional advice than, than we had probably countenanced. So at sites like Dunacare, which is a, a coastal promontory site, we've got settlement there from the second century through to the fourth century, maybe earliest, earliest fifth century. And that's a site type promontory forts, which really become a big thing in the post-Roman period and seem to be elite centers in some, some cases. And you can imagine that's the kind of site that they might also be launching raids on the Roman Empire from these coastal locations. But really the kind of real eye-opener in terms of our understanding of Pictish settlement and late Roman into post-Roman context has been our work at um, Tabernoth, which is a site just overlooking the village of Rhiney, about 40 minutes west of, of Aberdeen, so up in, up in northeast Scotland. And we've been excavating at Rhiney for about 10 years when we found this very high status, probably an early royal centre of the Picts. And that in itself extends back into the late Roman period, so probably starting in the 4th century and going through to the 6th century. So that in itself is fascinating. So again, it shows the kind of late Roman foundations for some of these elite centres of the Picts. But then just before lockdown in, in 2019, we... We began working on this huge hill fort at Tappanoth, which overlooks Rhiney. And it had always been assumed it was going to be late Bronze Age or, or early Iron Age. And, you know, to be honest, we were largely of that opinion as well. And it's this huge hill fort. It's about 17 hectares in extent. So that's the second largest in the whole of northern Britain. It looks extraordinary just online. It's massive. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's, well, previous survey work is just there was a few hundred house platforms inside. But using LiDAR imaging and drone-based imagery, my colleague James O'Driscoll identified more than 800 of these house platforms inside this enclosure. So incredible settlement. And so we, we tested this in, in 2019 and we put a, a section across the rampart and we dug a couple of the house platforms. And already in that kind of early days of digging there and we were like well there's a lot of objects here that look really like the objects down at Rhiney but we we're like oh, maybe it's just kind of a little bit later re reuse and then we got the radiocarbon dates back just before the kind of first major lockdown I've never been so surprised by some radiocarbon dates in my life so they were second century through to sixth century so they were directly contemporary with what we had down down the lowlands and we were like, wow, that's that's quite something. But obviously, you know, we'd only dug two of the house platforms. So we're like, right, well, we need to increase the sample. And so that was massively delayed by COVID and, you know, we're still working there. But now we've dug, I would say, at least a dozen more house platforms. And every one of them is of that date. So we've got late Roman dates, particularly 3rd, 4th century, through to the 6th, maybe into the 7th century. So again, it's just really eye-opening. We've gone from a settlement record of, I think literally, if you're being generous, a couple of dozen structures from lowland eastern Scotland in that kind of late Roman to post-Roman period to a site that potentially has 800 or more in, in one location. So really, it just, again, it makes you wonder about the scale of society in that late Roman through to the to the kind of late antique uh, period, and about our models of you know social collapse and 
you know, that needs to be reworked. And you know, again, maybe that idea of centralization is actually what's happening in that late Roman period. And it might be another reason why it's so difficult to find settlement is because you are getting centralization at some of these sites. Although whether they are year-round settlements or whether they're kind of assembly places where you come at particular times a year to you know, give tribute to your king or your late Roman leader is, is difficult to know and it's something we're trying to figure out and get some ideas on. Right, because my next question was going to be like, what do we think the purpose of a massive place like Tapo North is? Like, do you think it's associated with defence or is this a symbol of power and majesty like maybe Maiden Castle further south and Iron Age Hill Fort or, you know, is it all year round? We The purpose of this amazing centre, Pictish centre, it's still a bit unclear from the archaeology that you've done so far. Yes, it's a real head scratcher in terms of trying to figure out its role. So we do have, you know, in our medieval sources, reference to sites of assembly where you come and give tribute to your king and and the like. But in terms of, you know, the archaeological signature of those, those are generally thought to be open air sites with not much in the way of infrastructure or, or settlement. So if this is an assembly site, it's, it's an altogether different scale to what we knew before. And also there's some elements of the archaeology there that might argue against that in terms of you know, just the sheer investment in that hill fort is incredible. So, so the rampart around it is about four metres wide, a metre high, and it supported a palisade, which you know, if that goes all the way around, it's one and a half kilometres of timber you would have to find to build that defence or enclosure. And then inside, you know, all, all the platforms are quarried into the hill slope. There's well-developed floor layers, multiple hearths, you know, five, six hearths built up on top of one another. So again, it's, you know, it doesn't really strike you as somewhere that's just being used for, you know, a couple of days per year. But you might have both. You, know, you could have a smaller communities living there year-round. And that's augmented by people coming at certain times of the year. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really hard to get our heads around. And you know, if it is a more year-round settlement or a large-scale settlement, then you know, how is that actually resourced? And in that case, you would have to think that it's been resourced by a much bigger polity who are indeed you know, giving tribute to the, to the people living in this landscape and allowing them to live in this you know, fairly marginal landscape today. But equally one that's got access to, you know, great resources down down the valley. It's a very rich agricultural area, despite being kind of on the edges edge of the Cairngorms, and then it's got access to the kind of hunting traditional hunting grounds up in the uplands as well. So, so the short answer is we don't know how it functions in society, but we're having great fun puzzling through all the different possibilities and. That's just amazing to be in that situation full stop because, you know, if you told us a few years back that we'd, you know, kind of overnight find a site that had 800 house, <laughs> houses from the, you know, late Roman, immediate post-Roman period, and I think, you know, I think it just would have been nonsense, really. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I've got to ask about artefacts themselves discovered there. I mean, actually, of course, you've got the Traprain treasure and Traprain law further south, which kind of shows that connection between that local people and the Roman Empire. Have you found any evidence from atop Tapo North that shows connections, trade links with the Roman Empire at that late time in its ancient history? 
Yes, and that's, you know, before we dug there, there were a few objects from Tapanoth which were quite unusual and suggested Roman contact. And from the house platforms, we are finding Roman objects, Roman pottery, things like Neen Valley, colour-coated pottery and bits of Roman glass. Not huge, huge quantities, but again, if you think about the site being, you know, 200 kilometres north of Hadrian's Wall, it's amazing we're finding anything, really. So it is suggesting, again, those contacts with the Roman world extend way beyond the, than what we thought before into an area that we had very, very few Roman finds from before. But now, now done a care, we got a few Roman finds there. So I think, you know, again, the picture can maybe change quite, quite rapidly. And then in the kind of post-Roman period, we have at Rhiney down the lowland, we've got pottery coming from the Mediterranean, late Roman amphora, which is the first time that material's been found that far north. And we ha actually got a couple of shards of that material from Tappanoth as well, right near the top of the hill fort. So about 550 metres above sea level, they were lugging these big, probably wine amphora, knowing the pics, up to the top of this hill and clearly drinking Mediterranean wine, which again, <laughs> if you said that a few years back, I think, you know, it, it would have just, again, seemed crazy to even think think of such things. Absolutely. These picks drinking wine from Amphora atop a massive hill in Aberdeenshire, who'd have thought? It is remarkable because I think when most people think picks, they will think, you know, the Anglo-Saxon period, they'll think early medieval Britain. And of course, that you know, it is early medieval Britain that you see the picks reach their zenith. But it is so fascinating how this recent archaeological evidence, it's pushing the Pictish story back into the late antique period in Britain too. Our mind might immediately go to Pictish stones so beautifully carved, once again associated with the medieval period. Do we think that actually maybe these stones, these artefacts may have their origins further back in the late antique period too? We think so. Um, so this came from our work at Dunacare. So this is this promontory fort just south of Aberdeen, next to a famous castle called Donotor Castle, which itself has references in the early medieval period to being under siege in, in the Viking Age as well. And just along from that castle, which is a huge, you know, pretty big promontory, you can imagine would be quite impressive, promontory fort, presumably, in the Pictish period, there's this very small sea stack just in the next bay to the north. And from that site in the 19th century, this sounds like a lot of fantastical story. A bunch of youths from the nearby village got talking to the local grave digger who said that there was gold buried on top of the sea stack. So, you know, in days before television, they were like, right, let's go find this out. And it's quite a dangerous spot to get to. You have to scrabble up the, the cliffs, essentially. And they got on top and they started digging. They didn't find any gold, but they found these carved stones, which look like the kind of classic later and indeed early medieval traditions of the symbol tradition, but they're, they're quite rough and ready. And so they're always thought as being, you know, either quite expedient or, or early examples of this tradition. But no one had visited the, the site or no one had investigated the site since that discovery in the 1830s. And when they found these stones, they say that they found them from a low stone wall along the edge of the sea stack. So that gave us the target. So in 2015, we went up, climbed on top, which is one of the scarier, more adventurous archaeological expeditions <laughs> I've been involved in. And we, we dug some test bits. And again, we had no real expectation of what we might find, but I did wonder whether it could be 
part of a promontory fort, but incredibly eroded. So, and that turns out what it was. It was a promontory fort, but it's been very extensively eroded because it's quite a soft conglomerate rock. So it looks like, you know, we've lost a huge, huge chunk of land, essentially. But what was left was part of the rampart for the fort. And that was a kind of classic timber-laced rampart. And that appears to be where the stones came from. So built into that rampart fort. And then inside we had lots of buildings and structures, hearths, Roman finds. And again, it was a really surprising series of dates because promontory forts are kind of classic, you know, early Iron Age or, you know, post-Roman phenomena in northern Britain. And then we got the dates back and they were 2nd, 3rd, 4th century AD. Wow. Like, <laughs> and then made us think, oh God, what about these stones from the ramparts? So we were able, can't date the stones, but we were able to date the rampart makeup from you know, the charred timbers of the timber lacing, that kind of thing. And the dates there were 3rd, 4th century. So we can't prove it for sure. But it seems likely that those stones are 3rd, 4th century built into this rampart. And it makes sense of that early association of, of this kind of quite rough and ready carving. But at the same time, it's the classic symbols you find later on. It's the crescent, it's the double disc symbol, it's the, the, the fish which you find on, on these later stones. So although they're not carved particularly expertly, they are the same tradition or as as this kind of later manifestation. And so, you know, could it really be 3rd, 4th century? And it makes a lot of sense in terms of, if you think about, you know, what's the most likely origin for a symbolic system and a kind of carved stone tradition would be in the Roman period. And, and that's what, what you find in Ireland in terms of the Ohm tradition. That's what you find in Scandinavia. And in those two cases, they're more directly adopting the, a Latin-inspired tradition. But again, it's in that kind of late Roman period that they're doing that because of contact with literate cultures to the south. So it seems very likely that it is a late Roman tradition or, you know, could even extend earlier than that. But I think our best evidence so far of that early origins is the evidence from Danakir. And we certainly have evidence now that it's certainly a, a vibrant tradition in the 5th and 6th centuries through our work at Rhiney and dating objects from the Orkney Isles as well. well. I'll mention Rhiney in a bit because I've got the Rhiney man in my notes, which I feel <laughs> I need to ask about too before we yeah. completely wrap up. But I mean, these symbol stones, they are so iconic of Pictish culture, aren't they? Do we have any idea what their purpose was? <laughs> Short answer is no. The longer answer is, well, this is, again, one of the, the things that people said to me when I first started getting into the, into the pics was like, well, definitely don't do that PhD on the on the symbol tradition because you know that's where madness lies and you, again you won't go anywhere and there's lots of craziness surrounding it. So you know it's it's a tradition that's been recognised since the mid nineteenth century and associated with the Picts around about that time. It's found in the Pictish regions as far as we know in areas north of the Antonine Wall, and it has a range of symbols. Some of them are animals or objects, but many of them are, are abstract, things like these double discs or the crescents, these strange kind of tower-like symbols almost. So, it, you know, it's been a real puzzle since they were first rediscovered, I guess, in the 19th century. You know, what on earth do these mean? And you can imagine there have been lots and lots of ideas about what they might mean. 
what we can say is that you know there's no kind of local or regional concentrations of symbols, so they're unlikely to be kind of territorial markers. They're found in presumably pagan contexts, if indeed they go back into third, fourth century, and even in in the fifth century, places like Rhine are highly likely to be pagan, but they're also later found on Christian monuments. So it seems unlikely that they're pagan symbols per se. It's something that was appropriate in both both contexts. So people have, in the last couple of decades, particularly through the work of Ross Sampson and Catherine Forsyth, have began to look at these as maybe kind of being part of a symbolic system that might indicate something like names or, or status. So if you look on the later monuments, you see individuals on horseback or sitting on chairs and they're labelled by these symbols and they're usually one or two symbols. So if it is, you know, representing part of a written language or, or some, something along those lines, then the message must be really short. So names does seem most likely. And if we look at the the Ogham tradition or the runic tradition in Scandinavia, even though they are based on the Latin tradition, so they could write, you know, you know, whole novels using the the Ogham or the runic tradition in general, particularly in the early period, they are names. So it does again seem likely that's what the symbols are representing. But what's really interesting about the Pictish tradition is that they're definitely not using the Latin alphabet. So again, it's a very non-Roman, and you know, maybe deliberately so tradition. Mm as far as what the picks are innovating. So again, that's really, really interesting. And I think in, I'm in broad agreement. It must be some sort of identity marker and a naming tradition does does seem most likely. But unless we find a, a Rosetta Stone, we're not going to know for sure. <laughs> and I'm kind of almost like, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't find a Rosetta Stone because, again, a part of that kind of mystery and drive to find out more might be lost if you knew it was something really... <laughs> dull <laughs> yeah who knows who knows who knows a pictish rosetta stone who sees well come on then before we have to completely wrap up i will ask you quickly about the rhiney man because you mentioned rhiney a few times and this particular symbol stone is is unique and extraordinary so quickly so we don't have much time but what is the rhiney man that we've got here <laughs> well actually i think we can probably credit the rhiney man was really inspiring the whole project because it was <laughs> the first site that we really worked on. So the Rhiney Man is this carved stone. It was found in 1978 by the farmer ploughing his field, going happily about his business and hitting this huge stone with his new plough and uncovered this stone with this carving of this man, or maybe man, or figure, mythical figure maybe, and they are carrying an axe over their shoulder, this really thin shafted axe and they've got big pointy teeth and they're wearing a kind of tunic. So again, there might be you know, a god or a mythical figure or hero figure or, or of some kind. And so it was part of that discovery that really inspired the project. And in the same year it was found, 1978, they, um, the regional archaeologist and Ian Ralston flew over the site and took some aerial photographs of the find spot and revealed this crop mark enclosure Around about where there's a current picture stone that's still unusually standing in its original position called the cross stain. And so we set about to find out more about these enclosures and try and date those and see if they were you know, contemporary with the stones. And again, we had no real concept of what we might find. We thought we might find a few burials or, or the like. And it turns out you know, this was this incredibly high status settlement of the 4th to the 6th centuries AD. Basically the cross stain, and maybe the Rhiney Man, because we found another stone socket next to the cross stain. 
were standing at the entranceway to this enclosure complex, which would have had a big wooden palisade, and inside we found the kind of foundations of big wooden buildings. And the artifact assemblage was just quite incredible. It had this late Roman amphora, it had glass from Western France, it had glass from Ang Anglo-Saxon England, and huge amounts of production evidence, things like crucibles, moulds, including objects that resemble what you see in the stones. So again, we're not able to date the stones, but again, able to make a closer association between stones and the archaeology. So we find a little miniature axe that resembles the axe the Rhiney man carries. We find little moulds for making animal figurines that resemble the animals you see on the picture stones. And again, that helped us kind of put the chronology of, of the symbol tradition on more firm footing in terms of it definitely in operation in that 5th and 6th century and perhaps 4th century context of the Rhiney site. So yeah, again, it was a real eye-opener of you know, what you can find if you actually look at some of these sites and find spots of monuments like the Rhiney Man. Well, exactly. And it bodes really exciting for the future for archaeological work going forwards to learn more about the Picts and how far back they stretch into late ancient history. Gordon, this has been absolutely fascinating. And I've no doubt people listening have also found this so, so interesting. Last but certainly not least, as we wrap up now, you have written a book the, a very recent book with updated information about the state of archaeology, about the Picts, which is called... Picts, Scourge of Rome, Rulers of the North. Well, there we go. Gordon, it just goes for me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thanks, Tristan. Well, there you go. There was Professor Gordon Noble explaining all things the Picts. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoyed recording that one. Anything Scotland in either prehistory or ancient history, maybe even into the early medieval period too, you know me, I'm there. It's just such a fascinating area of the world with an incredible ancient history. Last things from me, you know what I'm going to say. If you've been enjoying the Ancients episodes recently, whether it's the Picts or the First Spears or Boudicca or Australopithecus or any of those recent episodes and you're thinking, you know what, I'd love to give something back to the Ancients. I'd love to help out. Well, you know what you can do. You can leave us a lovely rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. It really helps us as we continue to grow the podcast. But also, regardless, to share these amazing stories from our distant past with you and with as many people as possible. That is our mission and we will continue doing that for as long as we can. But that's enough from me and I will see you in the next episode. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.